This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. Welcome back to the Hacker Valley Studio. In this episode, we've brought in Chris Kennedy. He is the Chief Information Security Officer and Vice President of Customer Success at Attack IQ. And in this episode, we talk about MITRE ATT&CK. We talk about how things change through time and start to break down. And also, we talk about the maturity of automation, Attack IQ. Thank you so much for sponsoring this episode. If you enjoyed this episode and any other episode, please check us out at hackervalley.studio and also support us at patreon.com forward slash hackervalleystudio. Let's jump right into it. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again. Today, our very special guest is Chris Kennedy. He is the Chief Information Security Officer and Vice President of Customer Success at Attack IQ. Anyone that knows me knows that customer success is near and dear to my heart, and it's a true pleasure to have you on the show today, Chris. Welcome. Man, thanks for having me, and I'm looking forward to some uh, some serious straight talk today. You, I, I like your show and, and the style of it, and this is, this is my kind of format, so this is going to be fun today. Yeah, super excited. Even just the pre-stuff before we even hit record was awesome. Looking forward to this discussion. Chris, so for the folks that don't know who you are just yet, would love to hear a little bit about your background and what you're doing today. Killer. Well, let me start with what I'm doing today. Attack IQ is the industry-leading independent breach and attack simulation platform. It's all about continuous security validation to me and using automation to help drive that. I'm the chief information security officer focused on corporate security and safety of the product. It's a pretty powerful technology, as well as VP of customer success. I'm a 25-year cybersecurity veteran. I had some of, some of the most harrowing jobs I'll describe in a few minutes. I've seen and done a lot of stuff. And so I'm able to bring that experience and expertise and the investment in the company and have built a practitioner team to help our customers operationalize MITRE ATT&CK, build very strong programmatic driven continuous security validation programs and get the most value out of Attack IQ. But like stepping back in time, like we were talking about, I was a communicator officer in the Marine Corps and was basically assigned. Hurrah, Semper Fi. I was like the first cybersecurity, one of the first cybersecurity officers in the Marine Corps down at Camp Lejeune, my first duty station. I had to deal with Moonlight Maze, which was basically the government's first public, semi-public acknowledgement of state-sponsored attack against government networks. And the answer to that was, holy crap, change the passwords to everything you know. And so I'm a 22-year-old punk kid rolling out antivirus products, trying to figure out what central logging means before SIM technologies exist, get firewalls in place, and now are dealing with state-sponsored attacks in my face. Did a good job. And in a couple of years, I was promoted early and brought to Quantico. And the Marine Corps was then leading the charge and rolling out a true enterprise hub-and-spoke network that had centralized operational functionality and a true computer emergency response team functionality back dating myself with with the CSERT terminology. So I led the charge in building basically the first SOC in the Marine Corps. And we rolled out host-based intrusion detection, matured network-based intrusion detection, and got to deal with all the other state-sponsored attacks that came out of the time and the malicious worms and the love letter, the Melissa's, the NIMDAs, the code reds, 
all the things that made the cybersecurity, what I consider made the cybersecurity industry, you know, a real and growing industry. And I did that for almost four years, five years. And then the Marine Corps chose to outsource to NMCI. And I thought then it was my time to move on. I had cut my teeth well in a, in a very strong operational community. I moved on to defense contracting at Northrop Grumman and over the course of a decade, built out one of the most revered security operations center is in federal government. We were DevSecOps before that was a cool thing to do because the way we organized our teams with an analyst, a developer, and an infrastructure person all working together to achieve the whatever the specific security goal was. And with that, on a shoestring budget, we achieved some phenomenal success. Now, now the trick to it was all good people, and I have to give all the credit to the good people that work for me that, that made all that happen, but it was fantastic. And I got to stare state-sponsored attackers in the face. We too experienced what it meant to deal with you know, a highly targeted federal agency with a lot of interest from other state-sponsored actors with economic interests in the United States. And built out an entire portfolio from that, ended up being part of and an influencer in Homeland Security's U.S. CERT program, had an opportunity to potentially expatriate to the United Arab Emirates, and frankly, didn't really want to do that. This was post-Arab Spring. And so I got approached at the right time and moved from there to the largest hedge fund in the world. Bridgewater Associates, Ray Dalio being the founder, very interesting fella in the culture and principles around that place. And from there, I had all kinds of jobs. I was basically the first CISO of technology and helped get that, that program in place. I was a heavy influencer in the operations and risk management programs, did a lot in vulnerability management and contextualizing metadata to help better prioritize vulnerabilities, built my own products before things like Kenna and other kind of technologies that live in that space today live. And the thing I learned in all of those crazy harrowing jobs was how much of the ecosystem of security technology I as an executive am dependent on and often how unreliable it is. And the unreliability comes in many places. It comes in the form of both the complexity of all the systems that are there, the configuration requirements of them and how hard it is to manage, the sheer volume of stuff that you have to manage, the interaction with the business and how it breaks stuff sometimes and that friction it creates. And lastly, the fact that through time, everything changes and how do you stay on top of that? And I got burned incident after incident because of these reliability issues. And so I came to Attack IQ because I saw both what the concept of MITRE ATT&CK presents and a true and referenceable body of knowledge about known threat behavior that you can anchor everything to. How much of security is based on fear, uncertainty, and doubt? I mean, like I can tell you 25 years I've been in it, almost all of it. These security frameworks that exist, like 853 and 27,000, you have to do everything all the time, everywhere. And that's not risk biased and that's not threat focused. And so, bam, like MITRE ATT&CK, real threat, stuff I can anchor to, stuff I can like rotate my program on. Brilliant. The second is the maturation of automation to enable that. And those two things are like, this is the thing I've been looking for my whole life. Like I used to write in these defense proposals run your security operations center like a network operations center. Instrument it with lots of telemetry about what's going on, the reliability of your systems. If you do that, then you know that you're adequately covered all the time. You don't want to be in the middle of the breach and find out the sensor's not logging. And that was like a management principle I was trying to enforce. And now all of a sudden, I see this automation technology and this concept like MITRE ATT&CK that allows you to do that in a better way. And so like, you know, I st step back and look at it and I'm, I'm terrifically excited to be doing what we're doing now because I think it's it's one of those areas that just meaningfully sits above the fray of the noise that is the industry today. 
and changes how we all operate together. Yeah. So thanks for the the intro and letting us know a little bit about your background. Sounds like you're just really getting started with your career. Congratulations on that. I'm joking. Um, <laughs> Uh, as far as MITRE ATT&CK is concerned, you know, we talk about MITRE ATT&CK quite a bit on the podcast. We love it. We think it's brilliant and we think more professionals need to leverage it over time. And you hit on another thing that is something that is often overlooked within a, a security program. And that's like your tooling, right? Your tool optimization. How would you recommend for folks to actually use MITRE ATT&CK to actually look at the tools that they're utilizing today? Yeah. Well, I guess first and foremost, you talk about a lot, let me 30 seconds, like MITRE ATT&CK being this foundational framework, a body of knowledge of what is known as commodity state-sponsored attack tactic techniques and procedures. That itself, you know, I think is super important for people to understand. No longer do you have to operate under the construct of something bad can happen as the, the context of purchase in terms of what the purpose or goal of the investment would be. And so like, that's part one of the answer. I was sitting on a different webinar a couple of weeks ago, and this is like the first use case from my perspective. How have we historically bought security products in the past? Well, first and foremost, there's a driver. I got had, right? Or my peers have a capability that I don't, and I want to leverage that as a way to show competitive differentiation. I've got some capability that my competitor doesn't have. So there's a driver. Then there's like, how do I pick the technology to meet the specific threat? Well, often the re functional requirements are very loose. We haven't had a good way to define what exactly should this particular security technology protect us from. You get broad, brushstroke, salesy kind of statements, but you don't have something that's anchorable and referenceable in terms of functional requirements. You get tons of non-functional requirements. Will it integrate with my service desk workflow? Will it integrate with my SIM technology? Will it integrate with my other controls that are here or whatever the specific use case may be? What does the reporting look like? Then the selection process looks often like a phone call to someone else that's using like product. What does the industry analyst report say? What does the salesperson offer from a benefits package and swag and cost reduction and those non-functional requirements? And so like when it comes to just in tool selection, using MITRE ATT&CK and these concepts of automated attack simulation and emulation concepts is a much better way to select your technologies. Then when it comes to what does it mean for optimization? This is a very important topic of conversation, especially when you consider the circumstances that the world is in right now. If you look back in time, the last five years, like security budgets go up and up. There's a recent report from the Ponyman Institute that had two very interesting facts in it, a survey about security executives' confidence in their security stack and the stuff they have. And 48% of them said they don't have confidence in it. Now, these surveyed CISOs were like, you know, Fortune 500 companies with 18 plus million dollars of security budget. Right. I don't know who gives you $18 million and you give them, I can't with confidence <laughs> give you back. That's good money spent because right. you know, the startup and the little bit of money we get, we go to the board with every quarter and talk about how it's good money spent. That was fascinating to me. And then the other was that they were projecting 10 to 15% budget increase year after year. And that's historically been happening. So what's what's happened in the industry is that as threats evolve, we're just bolting more and more on. And it's getting bigger and bigger. And remember, security is a cost center. I mean, we're we're a light bill to the company in most in almost all cases. Really good companies, you know, are able to turn that light bill into some kind of service. Like, 
you know, your defense contractors can turn their internal cyber program into a service offering and extend it and stuff like that. But most companies can't do that, mm-hmm. which means the bigger the security program gets, the less profitability, the less return to the stakeholders and stockholders and shareholders. So that's bad. And now we're in a situation where COVID has you know, radically changed the economic environment. Almost everyone, but except for a handful of companies that are able to capitalize on the circumstance of COVID are hurting. And so that means that it's projected in both a, McK- a couple of McKinsey reports that have come out and a couple of other analyst reports, the budgets are going to get slashed. And what do you do in an era and a culture where the budget has always grown and grown when the budget starts ramping back down? So the you know, the, the joy rides over from my perspective. And, and that means that security executives are going to have to start to position to do less with more. And they're going to have to start optimizing. This is where it gets really interesting from my perspective. When you step back and think about MITRE ATT&CK and this body of knowledge, you now have this referenceable framework of adversary activity. It's a great place to start. There's lots of interesting ways to pivot on that data that's there. You can pick out known threat actors that come after your vertical if you're in this ambiguous vertical or you think the threat actors are going to change their TTPs anyway, you can pick a bunch of threat intelligence reports that articulate what are the most commonly used TTPs that are shared amongst all threat actors, things like that. But the point being that there's a body of knowledge there that a smart person can sit behind and say, here are the very specific threat techniques that are that if they happen is bad and we can measure and see if it's going to happen in our environment. Attack simulation gives you the ability to actually do that. And now you can actually start benchmarking product by product what you have, if it's working well for you or if it's not. And once you do that, that's more rationalization. What do I have? What's my inventory? Is it working well against these specific threats? You can then begin both the conceptual and literal exercising of what if I got rid of this? What would it be like? And I call this architectural security shifts. And I've I de- dealt with this in my previous career at some of one of my other jobs. What if I got rid of a preventive control? Unencumbered the business, as in like, I'm not going to stop you from doing this anymore. But what I am going to put in is a very good detection and response control that if you go to this website or if you try to exfiltrate data or if you, you know, name it, if you insert a USB thumb drive into your system, the alarm's going to go off and you might get fired. Because this is a policy. We've trained you on it. Don't do it. We're not going to stop you from doing it because it's too hard to control all the lateral around that. You know, there's use cases where you need to put a USB and there's use cases and we need to whitelist those. There's other use cases where I can't control the Internet. CDNs are impossible, so I can't manage XFIL and I can't manage data in a good enough way to tag it well. So how do I work in this dynamic? Shifting from preventive to detective controls is a way to do that. But how do you get confidence in doing that? We get confidence in doing that by setting the rules establishing that as a specific threat, and then from that threat, exercising it and making sure that security control works. And I actually did this where we went, you know, we picked out a couple of technologies that were both in the way of the business and were approaching end of life and were expensive to manage and said, well, what if we just log that and alert on it and like really test it, make sure that like we are, you know, someone's actually going to pick up the end to end efficacy of that alert is important and the analyst is going to do something and the automation behind that works. But if that that moves, I save money, I achieve the same goal, and I unencumber the business. That's what optimization is. That's optimization is staring at your portfolio, having an input from the business, an input from the industry about what's available as technology shifts, and then being able to exercise all of that stuff in a way 
where you can find what's the right mix and match of the Lego blocks to meet your specific goals. I think there's a lot to unpack there. And you, you've touched on a lot of things just now, right? We talked a little bit about how automation has grown and also how over time things change and, you know, things will start to break down. And just the sheer amount of products and services that there are to potentially make security more effective to yeah. get to the outcome and solutions that you're hoping for. But I, I've seen with organizations, and I'm sure you've seen the same thing, especially all of the unique situations that you've been in. There is a difference between something that's effective, that seemingly works, and something that's efficient, that's truly changing the way that you perform your business and also saving analysts, engineers, stakeholders time. So what are some of the differences that you've, you've observed between efficiency and effectiveness? Yeah. To me, these are these are like optimization strategies. I got a shout out to my good friend, Aaron Zolman over at Cedar. We worked together back in the day as well. He actually came up with this construct. But an optimization strategy that, that moves for efficiency means the security outcomes may not be of highest efficacy. What does that mean in practical sense? I'm going to go out and buy the security technology that has the most modules, the most integrated plugins, and the best support package so I, I have to invest as little as possible and, and can scratch enough of the security itch to feel comfortable with the risk tolerance, I would assume, in doing so. That, to me, is optimizing for efficiency. Basically, as low as operational cost as possible at the absolute appropriate risk tolerance or the lowest common denominator of risk tolerance. Where optimizing for effectiveness is a totally different strategy. It is that I will study every specific threat scenario I'm worried about. I will understand the associated TTPs with that, and I will cobble together a Frankenstein of a security stack package that will defend against every one of those, ambiguous to whatever the operational cost is. And I've worked in environments where, like, actually had that luxury where I could, like, doesn't matter what it's cost, like, there's $160 billion at stake here. We're going to make the, the best investment we need to make to protect that. And so it depends on, to me, in terms of how you manage the balance between those two spectrums as cheap and as effective as possible versus as absolutely effective as possible is the kind of the, the struggle of the CISO plight. And that's where I think MITRE ATT&CK comes back into play, where the ambiguity of the gray space between those two spectrums can be more colorfully defined and more technically defined in the defined TTPs that are there. And so, you know, there's, there's ways to achieve these kinds of efficiency and optimization strategies, but having a reference model or framework to anchor to and a way to use it to test and validate that those assumptions are good are the absolute keys to picking whatever strategy you choose. One thing that I think about is you have all of these applications, all these solutions in your environment. You think about the, the configuration, right? Because you, you might have the best tools, but if you're not using them correctly, you're, you're missing the mark. Would love to hear a story about when configuration management or your configurations have done you well, and maybe a story when it hasn't gone so well. Yeah, man. Like, so this was near and dear to my heart because, you know, I'm an, I'm an operator by practice and an executive by trade. And so first and foremost, the risk of change management is one of the largest risks an organization undergoes. And like, I don't know how many of your listeners, you know, have actually sat on configuration management or change management boards. But all the ones I've ever sat on were called bog sats, bunch of guys sitting around a table. 
And basically, you get on the whiteboard, the champion of the change comes in and says, I'm bringing this application in. I need this network configuration change, this endpoint configuration change, this API integration. This is how it's going to work. Draw it out. Security guy, what do you think? Uh, um, well, that port, I'm not sure. That's a that's a TS, top secret asset. We're spanning two zones. We shouldn't, but this is critical to the business. Okay, well, we'll log that as a risk register thing. IT guy, what do you, you know, I'm like, and that's how it goes. And then you go do it. Well, what is the real risk impact of that? That now with MITRE ATT&CK and the study of, of how TTPs operate, you can actually go and make a reference to like this threat actor takes advantage of this particular port protocol or attack methodology through this boundary or through this application interface or through this credential management system. And so that would implicate that. Second, the other risk is that even if the change is safe, does it always get executed as approved? And how often do you actually go back and validate the approved change and configuration management, uh, the approved configuration change was what was approved? And so having a, a pre and post risk assessment that is technically automated and enabled, exceptionally powerful. Like that's, that's the way it should be, but that's not the way it's ever been. On top of that, imagine how this works in the real world. Change boards meet probably twice a week, maybe more if you're an agile DevSecOps shop. If you don't have an automated checking function that validates the risk impacts of those changes pre and post with three changes three times a week, these changes compound on each other. And there's seldom an opportunity to go back and reassess. And so almost every incident I've been, that I've, and I've ran two, three major socks in my career, almost every incident I've been associated with had three underpinning themes. The security ecosystem wasn't reliable and I had gaps in data and things like that. And that's because I didn't have a way to validate the detection engineering function was working well. Second was that one of the primary vectors of attack was due to either a configuration issue with something in my security stack, as in the tech was there and should have worked, but didn't. Either I screwed it up in the configuration or I approved somewhere along the line an exception to that that compounded over time and resulted in an opportunity for an attacker to take advantage of that. And so that's that's the power of this is the, like the, the through time aggregation and introducing an automation platform and, a, and a, a way of being like, you know, Chris, I know you come from Netflix and I come from Bridgewater we're all about this culture of technology and, and what and how it works. Like the, the way of thinking of using knowledge of threat behavior and automation to always be checking the assumptions you expect and the decisions you make is the new way of being. And that's just the critical aspect to why I think, you know, attack is so important and where these new emerging technologies like attack sim are going to be so influential in everything we do. And, and the reality is like these concepts already exist. Think about the QC checks that are in the application release pipeline that you put in place today. I mean, you got a dev, you got a dev zone, you got a, a test zone, you got a UAT zone, you got a production zone. And the level of automation that goes into checking and validating the code is of high quality and is going to meet the specific requirements. Well, the security componentry of that also fits. And there's also automation that will help you with that. Well, this is no different. This is no different. And that you're making an enterprise change to your environment. It's going to have massive potential sweeping impacts of letting this new application in in terms of credentialing, access, data movements, network access. You damn better have a way to validate the changes you're allowing to make that are what you expect and that the change actually goes the way you intend for it to.
So we spoke a lot about, you know, some of the problems that you were running into when you were at some of your previous jobs, you were running into configuration drifting, no security ecosystem, and also the security posture eroding over time. I want to play a little bit of a hypothetical. So put yourself back into that position with all of your experience with kind of tool optimization. What types of configurations would you put in place today if you were to do it all over again? And what kind of technologies and practices, you talked a lot about automation, what kind of things would exist that you didn't leverage previously? And and Mm, why would you do that? Great question. And I can tell you, my perspective is not different than a customer that actually approached with a very similar, in a very similar scenario. This is a good friend of mine, took on a CTO role and went down to this financial institution and said, oh my gosh, what a mess. Like the company technologically is ripe for transformation. We've got systemic security, culture challenges. We've got a whole renovation to do here on both sides of the fence, security and technology. And we were talking about what we're talking about now, about like, how do you optimize for what you have? How do you know what you have is worth anything anyway? And he's like, man, I just like, I don't know how to do that right now. I've got so much, I've got so much to do. I've got to go get you know network visibility in place. I've got to go get segmentation strategy in place. I, I don't even have that. I got to get AppSec in place. And I said, well, brother, what are you, what are you talking about? Like, why do you think you need to do that? How do you know what you need to do? And how are you going to justify the budget for all of these activities? You're going to walk in and say, I think you need these as a, a smart guy that's new to the organization. Like the reality is you have to start with this central premise of being threat informed. That, you know, I'm, I'm going to start first and foremost with the things that I, that I think are going to hurt me first. And that comes with one frameworks like attack and a rich understanding of that and building a team that the rise of the threat intelligence analyst, it used to be an old DOD or that, you know, came out of the J2 and knew everything about Intel and was well connected to the classified communities and would write these really advanced malware research reports and stuff. Now it's a much different job. You know, it's those people that richly understand attack frameworks and the space of threat intelligence and how you can practically apply it. Second is you make that part of your foundational strategy and I'm going to pick and choose so I can make this project, these projects manageable, probabilistically working closely with my risk management team. Here are my crown jewels. Here are the core controls that I need to protect those crown jewels and the way the business works. And here are the key threats that would work against them. And that two things working together being what I, I call this being a controls bias, which is how the security program traditionally operates, controls inventory, what's my framework, do I have all this stuff? And then having also this threat bias and this convergence of risk and threat management as a starting point is the thing I would change. Because this then drives the ability to prioritize in a much more meaningful way. You can walk into the board and say, okay, Here's where we are. Like, here's my maturity assessment. There's lots of ways to do that. Lots of vendors that can help you with that. That said, here are the threats I'm worried most about. And let me tell you why. And here's the case histories and the studies. The Russians come after our kinds of financials or whoever they are. And here are the kinds of TTPs they are known to use. If they get us, which eventually they will, we have to assume breach at some point in time. There is no wall high enough. This is what they will do when they get inside. This is where most of our security money goes. Here's how I want to invest. I'm going to conduct a set of assessments using these automation technologies to emulate that behavior. And then I'm going to use it to squash it like bugs. And I'm going to like, I'm going to make this investment to 
turn this particular tactic green. I'm going to use this one to make this particular technique turn green. And I'm going to use that both to drive the justification of investment. I understand the business. I understand the crown jewels. I understand the key controls. I understand the key threats. Now I'm going to start programmatically driving the rectification of those controls and have a continuous way through our change management process, through our technology selection process, through our security system development lifecycle process to introduce this concept into everything we do so we can always be validating ABV, always be validating <laughs> the security right. assumptions we put in place. And that's a thing that's missing. I mean, that, that, like, that was the mind exploding thing for me and why I came to Attack IQ is that we make a good informed conceptual decision based on a bunch of people sitting around a table intellectually sparring over what's the right approach. Then we go do what we think is the right approach and we really have no idea. And then we forget about that. And then it adds up over time and then you're had. And making it part of the DNA of the organization's operating posture to like every process has a validation step. And like, let me tell you like what, I, what I'm talking about when I say that. I went and stared at Attack IQ's customer portfolios, the customer success guy. I'm the senior practitioner in the company. I run all our interaction and program development work. Got a great team of a couple of them are former CISOs or malware researchers. It's really fun. And I went and I had them go ask all the customers, like, what's your use case? What are you using this for? And I found 26 different applications of use of MITRE ATT&CK and attack simulation. And mm -hmm. the goal was across all the pillars of the security team, like within governance, risk, and compliance. I want to automate my compliance dashboarding so I don't have to have these crazy interviews with my regulators. Within the risk management, I want to automate the audit function that informs my risk posture. I want to automate my blue, red, and purple teams in such a way that I can do these more and advance the scale of it. Within the operations teams, we start talking about you know, how do you validate that the security ecosystem is actually working and that analyst has a shot? How do you evolve to be a threat hunter? You can you know, have an automated platform to actually start synthetically introducing attacks to see if the team's actually ready to threat hunt. All the way to training. Like you can literally run exercise. We have a big DOD deal where we're the cyber opposition force and we act like the bad guy using our automation platform and the attackers get or the uh, defenders get to train. And so within engineering and architecture, how do you pick your technologies? How do we move towards this through this rationalization and optimization strategy? All my customer population is thinking about all of these things and being threat informed is now a key component of that. And it influences the entire security program. Yeah, that's incredible. You spoke about being informed. And when I think of being informed, I also think about being educated. And education's a, such a huge topic for Ron and I. And I also heard that you guys at Attack IQ are doing something really cool on the education side of the house. Would love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, listen, like this is what makes Attack IQ special. Another reason why I'm I'm really proud to be here. I mean, first first and foremost, at the backbone of our company is MITRE ATT&CK. We believe in that framework. If you step back in history, 20 years ago, they invented CVE and CVSS, and that has turned into an, an entire industry that allows us to better manage vulnerabilities. But that's the first step of the kill chain. There's nine more phases of attack, and that's just not enough to deal with. And so now here comes MITRE ATT&CK. We think that it's going to have even more influence because, well, frankly, there's nine more phases of the kill chain to attack, and that's where most of your security budget goes. And so we're investors in that. First, we're members of the Center for Threat-Informed Defense out of MITRE Ingenuity. We're founding research partners in that. And so we're giving back 
And we believe that that's critical to helping organizations shape their security posture. There's a level of education and culture to break here. And that culture breaking comes through getting knowledgeable about the art of the possible within the industry. And so both in the research that we do, and then also in launching Attack IQ Academy, which it's not a vendor education program. Like we don't teach you how to use Attack IQ. We do that through concepts we call blueprints, where we have operational off-the-shelf playbooks. So we can teach our customers how to do that through an entire life cycle. Attack IQ Academy is about being an industry training program. And so we tackle topics like how do you operationalize MITRE ATT&CK and teach people about the framework, how it's practically can be applied, what are the use cases to invest in with the convergence of threat intelligence and risk management. We teach people about what breach and attack simulation is. It's not about we're, we're in the space, but the fact that the automation is now mature enough and is frankly, you know, on the Forrester top 10 emerging technologies to be mindful of and is coming up like get on the train. Get after it because it's a meaningful way to help you build and shape your program, but it takes an investment. We talk about purple teaming. Like, I love this topic. of like It's mind-blowing to me coming out of the Marines of, like, everyone loves red on blue. I mean, I'm dating myself with Halo in the the YouTube. (laughs) Yeah. Like that. But, like, the generals would want that. Like, you literally, they want, like, I want to see, you know, who's attacking us and turn that red. And uh, I want to see our defensive strategy, turn that blue. And and the dashboards all look like that. And that culture was there because it came out of the DOD because that's what we like to do. We like to fight. And now purple team is like, no, no, no. Like, the bad guys are the good guys. The red teamers are going to come in and share with you exactly what they would do to you. You're going to tell them exactly what you're worried about and the capabilities you have. And you're going to go do those things together and figure out how to fix those things first. And holy cow, what a difference in culture that creates. Now, culturally, it's hard to do. They're different DNA of people. But that's where this education is so important when it becomes top-down driven out of the executive staff. of Like, this is how we're going to start operating. Organizational shifts, all of a sudden the red team and the blue team work under the same boss. So the incentives are different. Operational processes can change. Automation platforms can help enable this and capture information about that. These are all uh, about how to do that. These are all very important and impactful training sessions that we're creating. Not only that, let me give you some metrics. Like we started this thing 90 days ago. These are, you know, we're a series B startup doing really well. These are practitioner led courses. These are not watch a video and get a stamp. These are Q&A, like everyone's different. 2000 students have been through it across 126 countries. And so think about the investment it takes to both create a system to deliver that, to have 2,000 people come through it, a feedback mechanism, and always improving it. That just shows you Attack IQ's commitment to moving the industry and making folks understand what the power of this can be. And you know, where they go with us or not, it doesn't matter. Like Our mission is to help improve security through compute. And that's going to happen one way or another. And we'll, we'll find that most of the opportunities will come back to us anyway, because you know, we're doing the best job of that. So yeah, I'm, I'm terrifically excited about what we're doing with the Academy. But oh, by the way, for those that are cert hounds, you know, we've got a partnership with ISC Squared. You get CPE credit for participating in it. So that helps you in terms of those coming out of the DOD that require that for their role and things like that. So, but we've done it right in keeping it industry focused. We've done it right in that we've got the right kinds of leaders teaching those courses. And we've done it right in that we've hooked it into the right ways to incentivize people to do it. It's free. You get CPE credit for it. You get a knowledge and understanding of something that's new and emerging. 
That's awesome, Chris. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. You dropped a lot of knowledge for a lot of folks out there. For anyone that wants to stay up to date with what you have going on or anything like that, or even information about Academy, what is the best way that people can do that? Yeah, right. We actually are in the in the process of a new website renovation. It's coming out real in a couple of days, but www.attackiq.com for, for what we do. I'm chris.kennedy at attackiq.com for your listeners. And then for those that are interested in, in getting some of that free academy training, it's academy.attackiq.com. Excellent. We'll be sure to drop all that in the show notes. Really appreciate it, Chris. And we'll see everybody next time.